Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is David Spiro. David is an independent spiritual teacher living in the Bay Area. He and I somehow connected with each other several years ago. I think I might have come across his website and read some things and sent him an email and, and we ended up on each other's email lists and you know sending things back and forth, chatting about sometimes spiritual things, sometimes political things and so on. But um, we've sort of become virtual spiritual friends uh, through this process. And so it's a great uh, pleasure for me to have David as our guest this week. And as we have been doing with previous interviews, we're going to make this somewhat autobiographical. Um, on David's website, davidspiro.org, he has a whole autobiography page, which you could read, but I think uh, this discussion will go into greater detail than that. And um, I think you'll find it interesting. So David, welcome and, and thank you for um, coming on the show. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah. So uh, I think, uh, unless you have a better idea, I think a good place to start might be just, uh, you know, when as a young man or whatever did you get bit by the spiritual bug and, and you know, how did, how did that feel at the time? It goes right back to the very beginning of my life when I noticed that my awareness had a kind of innate radiance or knowledge embedded within it. Mm -hmm. I don't really talk about my very early years often, but since you're asking me, this seems to be coming up. I was vividly aware of consciousness at a young age, which is before I undertook any formal spiritual instruction. I remember when I was probably somewhere between seven and nine years old, the entire structure of my consciousness merged in a transcendental world, a world of divine love and golden light. This is the first major experience of pure consciousness or the absolute or God, whatever you want to call it, uh, that I can discuss with you. After that, things faded directly after that experience or immediately after that experience. Before you go on to the, the fading, um, what triggered that experience or is it hard to say? I mean, did it just happen spontaneously? You're walking down the street and... Exactly. Huh. I was literally walking down the street, and it was a very beautiful day in uh -huh. Providence, Rhode Island, uh -huh. and the whole transmutation or transformation of consciousness happened without warning, without preparation. There was just a sudden opening. And so when you say it was a merging into the transcendent, um, were you still aware of yourself as a kid walking down the street, or did you lose all bodily sensation, or what? Yes, I lost all bodily awareness, mm -hmm. and I was catapulted into a golden love world. Huh. If you've read the poetry of Thomas Traherne, a little bit, he talks about the wheat fields. It was like that. Hmm. A golden and translucent perception, a perception, super perception, of an exalted plane of being, which was not featureless. Everything was in it. 
This whole world was in it, and yet the world was not revoked, but there was some kind of clear ascension that happened in that moment. Now, if someone had been watching you walking down the street while that was happening, would they have seen you continue to walk down the street in a normal way, or did you fall to the ground, or what? No, I didn't fall. <laughs> it just came and went like a breeze. Uh -huh. For just a few seconds? Just, it seemed like a few seconds. It's hard to say. It probably went anywhere from 1 to 25 seconds, if I were to just guess offhand. Was there anything specific and describable that you saw in that state? Uh, you know, kind of a, in terms of some sort of celestial objects or something, or was it more just a, a context, a celestial context that you had kind of fallen into without any discernible features? It certainly had the quality of timeless being. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to describe it. There was no time, there was no space. There was an utter sense of exaltation and utter self-transcendence in the most natural way you could imagine. It was really not some kind of dip into the void the way the Buddhists understand it, mm -hmm. nor was it the light of the Paramatman as it is ordinarily understood by the Hindu community. It had something of a world and also a worldlessness to it. It was timeless consciousness. It was beyond consciousness. It was lucid hmm. and full. Were you still aware of the sidewalk and the trees and the cars, or was it like a total, you were totally zoned out from all that and just in, in this? I was that alone. There was no, no visual, no sensory perceptions. Nothing. Huh. It was just that. It was just that. It was both dissolution and ascension and fullness, radiant bliss. It was totally happy without any center active in the human being. There was no center of David in that moment at all, which is why there was no environment. So when you came out of it, did you think, holy mackerel, what was that? Yes, yes. It was sudden and unpremeditated. Therefore, when that left, or appeared to leave, there was a sense of something tremendous having vanished. Hmm. Was something there, something living forever, something you could just taste forever and ever. Was there sort of a, an anguish for having lost it, or was it? did you feel more like um, suffused with, with bliss and, ever, and, and all for having experienced it? The feeling was I could never, ever forget this. Mm -hmm. And yes, there was a concomitant sense of anguish. It's a good word as long as you can go into the subtlety of, of the meaning of that word. It was a sting, the slight pain, an anguish, something like that. The loss of something that was incomprehensibly blissful and radiant. Mm. Did, did you feel that you had utterly lost it, or that you had primarily lost it, but there was a remnant or a, a flavor of it that was re being retained? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I can answer that, so I'll just steer away from it. Okay, no problem. Um, so then you said that it, you know, over the, I guess, hours, days, weeks, it kind of faded and life went on. You were a kid in, in Providence and uh, 
eight or nine years old or something. And so uh, what next of significance? During the summer vacation from school, mm -hmm. my guess is that it was in late July or early August of probably 1963 to 1965. So I was returning in several weeks back to Roman Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> this was not the monotheistic God that I experienced, nor did I associate it with Judeo-Christian Islamic ideas or understandings of God. It had nothing to do with that, and that was clear. You see, I had been instructed previously with Catholic training, propaganda, if you will, right. brainwashing, if you want to <laughs> go into it from a more severe, critical angle. Right. Yet there was no bridge between this and the understanding that I was given theologically by the Catholics. Right. By this you mean that, that sublime experience you had had, that you, you didn't connect the two in any way whatsoever? There was no connection. Right. There were two completely different realities. One was described by the Roman Catholic nuns and faculty. The other was what I had tasted within, and there was absolutely no bridge there. Right. So it didn't occur to you that this might have been some, you know, that what Jesus had been experiencing or any such thing. You just fig figured it was, out of, you know, un totally unrelated. Yes. Right. Uh, what I sensed was what I had been told in school was utterly false. Right. Although I may not have formulated this line of thinking, in the heart there was an intuition that all that I had been told should be discarded, mm -hmm. and this should be listen to this should be absorbed as being the actual reality of whatever it is that is the divine consciousness so it sounds like that in, that experience had a pretty big impact on you that lingered and that uh, that you know that caused you to reevaluate everything in light of that yes but it was also naturally forgotten uh -huh. it was not something i could hanker to hold on to Right. or to try to preserve in my imagination or memory, I knew it was way beyond any kind of relationship with my personal self, including the faculty of my memory, mm -hmm. or anything I had been told secondhand about God. Let's put God in quotation marks here. Right. Okay, so this was, how old are you at this point? When you're, you're going back to Our Lady of Perpetual Torment School, you had had this experience. What, what were we around? Ten now or something? It has to be, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. And I gathered from reading your website that you were in your late teens by the time you you kind of really got back on the spiritual train, so to speak, and 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 really started, you know, pursuing that with uh, with a vengeance. Yes, and this brings us into a discussion of my formal spiritual instruction. Right, but even before we get to that, if we move chronologically, I mean, most of us, those ages between 10 and 17 or 18, are pretty turbulent times. I mean, we go through so many physiological changes and emotional changes and so on. And I know for me, it, I was not the, the serious, quiet, com contemplative student or person that, that uh, you seem to have been. I was frivolous and hedonistic and 
you know, just a wild and crazy kid with, with some spiritual bent, certainly, but I, I didn't give it a whole lot of encouragement. But I, I get the feel that, the feeling from what I read on your website that, you know, you were a, kind of a, a serious guy through all those years. You, you know, you weren't doing all the wild and crazy teenage stuff that a lot of us did. Not true. No? <laughs> okay. I had friends and we had a good time. Yeah. Many good times. And just like kids have good times, I certainly was having good kid times. But there was this other dimension, really, to my personality and my subjective life that was always there. It was always deeply ponderous. It was serious. It knew all about suffering. When that light faded, if it did produce any effect, it made a contrast between the relative and the absolute, one that reinforced something perhaps I knew in my heart, but needed to have resurrected through that divine light experience. Mm. This contradiction between the world and the self, the self as it's understood in Vedic terms, as the absolute, I would say that that experience produced a wave of clarity about what was and was not eternal. Hmm. You mean that experience when you were eight or nine? Yes. Yeah, cool. So it did have a, a carryover effect that you know influenced the next decade or so of your life. Yes. Huh. Interesting. All right. So um, you were about to say, yeah, I guess age 17, 18, you learned to meditate. I think that's what you're about to start talking about, and, and that had a profound impact. Yes, I was initiated into a lineage of meditation mm -hmm. in the West that has East Indian origins, mm -hmm. and that served as a tremendous boon to my spiritual life. There was an instantaneous reversal of the entire direction of my life, which at that point had to necessarily be outward because of the time involved, the time period, which is going from high school to university life. Life was moving me outward into the world to explore right. academics and uh, intellectual stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. And it was just before I graduated high school that I was initiated into a form of meditation that turned out to be quite immense. You're welcome to say what kind of meditation that was, if you wish. I haven't yet discussed it publicly. Uh -huh. It's probably something you're familiar with in Fairfield, since everything is in Fairfield. Right. But maybe sometime we'll discuss it. Okay. Uh, I have some concerns about reciting anything that's patented or copyrighted these days, yeah, and I've already have had requests made of me mm -hmm. from various spiritual sources that they would prefer that I not discuss my time with them, and that's fine with me because I rely only on what I know at this point. Uh -huh. I only speak from who I am and what I know. Therefore, I am just as casual with my past as I feel I was indicated through discussions with various organizations and teachings that I had been involved with. Mm -hmm. um, it's really a gesture of respect on my part. I have nothing to gain or lose right. except it's a possible lawsuit at some point, which you know, is actually viable based on some of the interactions I've had with some of these people. I've been quite shocked. Hey, don't, worry, don't worry, they're going to come after me long before they come after you. But uh, 
But uh, I would also say that it's foolish of them to try to, you know, pressure you not to speak of them because to me it sounds like a ringing endorsement, you know. I mean, if if where you are today has anything to do with what you did at this, that, or the other time in your spiritual progress, then I should think that they would regard that as a feather in their cap, you know, and uh, and say, see, this thing works. Look what happened to him. <laughs> but... Uh, Whatever. It's only a feather. It only becomes a feather. Uh-huh. I'm willing to confess my own inner condition in relationship to that practice. Yeah. And you know the way in which I would then discuss that practice or that practice's role within my own spiritual process. See, that can be an iffy thing, especially if I consider myself to be the context in which the spiritual practice worked. Right. If you look at the basic way in which practices or sadhana are given and the environmental or organizational context in which they occur, I think you'll agree with me that often the technique or the practice or the dogma becomes far superior to the individual who practices it. Right. That that is what is to be praised and uh, exalted beyond all contexts even beyond the individual user's personal life context. That's precisely what I refuse to do because I maintain also that I was actually born in the condition that I am in now, Mm -hmm. which makes things a little more, it it adds another twist to the plot. Right. So basically when people ask me about my past, Rick, what I tell them is that I was maturing in the midst of these teachings. Mm -hmm. I was simply being entertained in divine company, in transcendental context, and that context had a tremendous effect upon me. I feel eternally grat- uh, in gratitude. Mm-hmm. I feel eternally in gratitude to all of my spiritual sources. Mm-hmm. I am in utter appreciation of everything that I have been fortunate enough to come across in a spiritual context, mm-hmm. and I thank all of the sources. They know who they are, who who have been part of my spiritual uh, journey. But that doesn't mean to say that I could not have achieved this in other ways. Yeah, I was going to say, it could be that you you might have learned a completely different collection of things and had the same outcome, you know? Yes, I would have found a way because to me it was driving urgency that was conducting this whole process. And there's some spiritual teachers who have said that 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 in itself is the this the the real engine on the train of spiritual development you know it's the it's the as shankara i think put it the vehement intensity uh it might have been patanjali i don't know which but um that it's that determination or that resolve that is the primary driver of our of our progress and uh, i suppose these whatever techniques we we pick up in order to facilitate things are, are perhaps secondary to that that's nicely said. Without that fervor, that passionate motivation, mm-hmm. that burning desire, you can practice techniques for decades and not achieve the final result. Right. Uh, we have plenty of time, so I don't think we're diverging, but which is not to say that a person should sit down and grit their teeth and, you know, kind of strain and, and, you know, contort themselves necessarily. That's not, I don't think, what you mean by fervor and burning desire. It's, it's something more fundamental than that. 
Um, it's not an it's not a intensification of of egoic manipulation. It's it's something that comes from a deeper level. That's correct. Yeah. Just want to throw in that cautionary note, lest we mislead anybody. You can stop me if we're getting ahead of the story, but um, so well, let's go back to the point where you, you learn to meditate and you begin to have found experiences. Is it, is it worth elaborating on, on those initial experiences? There's so many that mm -hmm. most of them have vanished. But the words satori or samadhi or even epiphany, mm -hmm. as it's used in certain literary contexts, become descriptive and useful to understand what was happening. This going beyond the mind, mm -hmm. flashing into the source, the center of awareness, the centerless center of awareness, that became the context of my development in and out of meditation. Uh, in meditation, which you might call Raja Yoga, mm -hmm. I meditated on a daily basis, twice a day, sometimes for long periods, often for long periods, and then would return to a more discriminative context where I was studying. So for me, my own process was a mixture of many yogas. You know, the traditional way to understand them is in a Vedic context is that there's karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, jnana yoga. Right. For me, several were going on simultaneously, or perhaps even all. I remember reading on your website, I don't have to remember too far back because I just read it about an hour ago, uh, you were saying that you experienced a lot of pain and, and angst, I don't know if you used that word, but due to the, the sort of contrast, I, I think you said, between individuality and universality, like the two hadn't hadn't meshed properly yet or something, and, and obviously something was being worked out in order for them to do so. Maybe you should be good to describe that a bit. I think I said something like, I became aware of the utter contradiction between individuality and pure consciousness, something to that effect. Right. During that time, which would be like a span of about three to four years, I burned through all the sheaths, all the inner casings of a human life hmm. and came radically clarified in consciousness. Hmm. That took about three full years of regular meditation combined with ardent inquiry and study. This is not something that I put down. This was not something that I would shelve and say, yeah, I need a vacation from this. To me, it was like live or die. I either would live this way for this understanding and experience, or to me, I will just die as some pathetically normal character, some kind of conventional American, stuffed with material possessions or lack of them, whether it was rich or poor didn't matter. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get to the heart of the issue of what existentially this situation is that we live in, this world. Were you aware that you were burning through sheaths, or did you just feel like there was a lot of stuff going on? You know, you were working stuff out. No, it was happening. So you were kind of aware distinctly of specific sheaths as you burned through them? Kind of like, by sheaths I believe we mean sort of concentric rings like those Russian dolls of, uh, you know, kind of more and more deep, deeper, more essential layers of 
awareness or, or, or whatever. Um, you can you can probably say it better, but uh, were you aware of this progression specifically? Oh, like I've, now I've burned through this one. Okay, now I'm working on this one. Was it like that? There was certainly an understanding that I was progressing to a deeper and deeper level of consciousness through subtlety. Right. From gross to subtle uh -huh. to transcendent. That was completely clear for me. And I simply knew that the process wasn't completed and that more application of my sadhana was necessary. Mm -hmm. That's how I progressed like that. I just used my own natural understanding as a barometer, as a measure for what I had or had not attained. Also reading texts like the Upanishads, the Gita, certain Buddhist texts, Walt Whitman, Rania mm -hmm. Maria Rilke, the poet, there were a whole uh, slew of spiritual influences there on a literary level. Sri Aurobindo, mm -hmm. J. Krishnamurti, I really indulged who I thought to be the genuine uh, Buddhas, if you will, to allude to the title of your show, uh -huh. and to see if my progress was in fact real or a figment of my imagination. I was completely conscious of the possibility of self-deception, let's put it that way. Mm. Because this is all about subjective life. Right. It's all about you you ultimately have to be the one who discerns your own realization. Did you have any teacher at this point whom you respected that you could interact with to kind of check or give you feedback? Yes. The tradition and lineage into which I was meditating uh -huh. provided a great deal amount of knowledge and understanding and courses to attend, etc. So there were living, embodied teachers or a teacher that you could sort of say, hey, I'm experiencing this, what do you think about that? And then they could give you some kind of feedback and that, that seemed to be reliable and useful? Yes. Good, good. During, you were going to college during all this time. Uh, were you able to integrate this whole process you were going through into your studies? I mean, were you able to sort of write term papers or you know theses and, and whatnot about, about what you were going through and, and to kind of give it a you know, get double duty out of <laughs> out of what you're experiencing. Yes, if you were to read my term papers in college, they're all about consciousness uh -huh. and trying to apply um, an understanding of consciousness to a particular field. And I use those as contexts for self-inquiry mm -hmm. and for the expression of my devotion and love toward the beauty of the text that I happened to be studying at that time. Hmm. For example, if I was studying Shakespeare, I was really into the text itself as a work of art. I wasn't just using it as a means to an end. I was considering it almost on the level of scripture, perhaps yeah. on the level right. of scripture itself. That's how I treated things during that time. Everything was taken with great seriousness and intensity. Mm -hmm. Did your teachers uh, appreciate you, did you feel, or did, they un did your professors understand what you were talking about, or did you feel it sort of fell, fell on pearls before swine kind of a situation sometimes? Mostly appreciation and then some swine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not too many swine. Good. <clears throat> well, you weren't going to school in Iowa then, I guess. <laughs> I did attend one year at... It was called Maharishi International University. Ah. Actually, I wasn't alluding to them. It was a sort of a lame joke about all the swine we have out here in Iowa. But uh, I, I also attended there for a while and ha had a good time there. <laughs> so this took several years. 
did it sort of build up to a crescendo, a climax, and and there was a breakthrough after which you felt like I have arrived. Many, but often that breakthrough would congeal; it would recondense into a solidified individuality, hmm. otherwise known as ignorance. Huh. It would not be enough, and so the key was to continue meditation and asanas and other practices mm -hmm. until this crescendo could be maintained at a very, very high level, not maintained effortfully, but maintained in the sense of stabilized. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You, you went through the I got it, I lost it syndrome for a while. Oh, yes. Which many people do. And uh, and then was there was there some point at which you you felt that it was stabilized beyond disruption or is it more of a fluid thing where there's even now the possibility of of losing it momentarily or something? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, I follow your line of inquiry mm -hmm. and I like it because it's clear and poignant and it gives me an opportunity to think through this with you freshly okay. in this moment. Good. The gaining and the losing, as we just discussed, would simply continue, but at ever-deepening levels or perspectives within consciousness. Mm -hmm. And there was a recognition that each breakthrough was leading me into a place of unknowingness, absoluteness. Over time, I say over time, you just have to take that with a grain of salt. The strict Advaitists would not like that kind of statement over time, but that's their problem. Over time, consciousness appeared to take on definitely a more ultimate form, and did. And there were times when there was no where to go beyond that. And there were even later confessions of being that forever without fluctuation. But I have to be honest with you. I've been through every single level of samadhi that is significant within a human birth, and none of them satisfied me. None of them produced satisfaction. The notion that one should be satisfied by one's realization is a myth. Mm -hmm. One should become enlightened to one's satisfaction, but you do not become satisfied, satiated, put to rest. There's always this quality of hunger in the human being, mm. a kind of devotional longing that continues even after the most deep and profound forms of self-realization. I'm glad to hear you say that. Did you want to say more just now, or shall I interject? Okay, good. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you mentioned the strict Advaitists, and I'm not sure exactly who you were alluding to, but there's a whole kind of a gang these days of you know non-duality teachers, neo-Advaitins they're sometimes called, who are very much opposed to the notion of levels, of progress, of any sort of path that one treads. When you talk that way to them, it's, it's a little bit like talking to a Christian fundamentalist in, in the sense that um, you just can't, at least I can't, seem to dislodge that notion. You know, uh, they, f they feel that I'm you know, mis misguided. I feel that they're misguided. There's, there's some lack of communication going on. And I would suggest that the most respected traditional teachers of Advaita didn't think that way. 
Shankara, Ramana Maharshi, they all acknowledged that there are levels of development and that people progress through them and that sometimes you have to go through a certain type of practice or a certain stage to to make you eligible for the next stage and you know and so on to me the the, the idea of are you enlightened is sort of like asking are you educated whatever your level of education you could always say yeah but you know there's more there's more depth there's more clarity in the case of education more knowledge so that seems to concur with what you were just saying about you know as long as you've got a human body there is room for further exploration do you agree with all that yes <laughs> to a large extent and I don't disagree with that small extent only I wish to clarify something about the word exploration okay you can't speak of being realized until you know that you are all permeated with the bliss of the self. Mm -hmm. That, by the way, is a phrase from Ramana Maharshi, if I'm not mistaken, the bliss of the self. Mm -hmm. The self is absolute consciousness, as you know very well, in your own understanding and experience. There are degrees to which that can permeate. You can have a cloth that is dyed lightly, or you can have a cloth that is dyed very deeply deep blue, almost black with blue, or you can have a very light form of blue. They're both blue. They both conform to the description of blueness, but there's a sense of depth in one that is not in the other. And for that reason, I would postulate that there are states of consciousness until you arrive at this all-saturated condition, this all-saturated bliss consciousness that makes it known to you that not just you are that, but everything is that, mm -hmm. that there is only that. Now, there's no talk about enlightenment, real, true, full self-realization until you can claim knowledge of that. Mm -hmm. You brought up the Neo-Advaiti lineage that has come to pass for the last 20 years or so, maybe 25 years, mostly stemming from Hunjiji. Uh, also called Papaji of Lucknow, who was a professed student of Ramana Maharshi. With all due respect to the people who teach in that lineage, I can appreciate their urge for a democratic notion of enlightenment, where there are no levels, there's no elitism, there's no specialness. That seems to be one of their big things. They don't want anybody being more special than anybody else. <laughs> this all sounds wonderful on paper, but when you want to go to an expert, you go to one to learn. It wasn't that way with Ramana Maharshi. Ramana Maharshi held himself in very high spiritual esteem. And I also wish to add something a bit disturbing that should be noted by the people who claim to proceed out of his lineage. He gave clear instructions at the end of his life that there would be no successor to his teaching. And I find it a bit plagiaristic, to say the least, a bit dishonest for people to come out and claim to be vehicles of his teaching when he made a cautionary statement that no one should do so. So there's a lot to be said on this matter. I don't mean to be overly severe, but people should be careful about claiming relationships that are inherently prohibited by the founder, by the people that they themselves have invoked in order to make themselves believable as teachers. Mm. 
And to play devil's advocate to that, I would say from my familiarity with the various students of Papaji, they're not all colored with the same brush. Some of them are very much appreciative of the idea of continued progress. Andrew Cohen, for instance, is always talking about evolutionary enlightenment and progressive nature of development and so on. And I, you know, I know a good many people who have benefited greatly from the teachings of Gangaji and, and some of the others. You know, my experience is that people just kind of gravitate to a teacher who is commensurate with their level, with their need, with their level of development, and they derive what benefit they can from that teacher. And if they outgrow that teacher, they move on to something else. And and they usually look back with appreciation, like, okay, well, that was good. Now I'm going to do this. You know, whether or not those teachers, um, you know, would be condemned by Ramana Maharshi for doing what they're doing, I can't say, but they seem to be making contributions each in their own way, and uh, they may not be the ultimate complete package that could theoretically be presented, but, you know, there's, there's benefit there. They're all, everybody's holding up their stick, so to speak. I am not talking about one person uh, teaching Neo-Advaita or the other, and I'm not judging anyone. I'm just pointing out basic copyright laws, you know, whether they are legal or not. Yeah, if, someone, yeah. if someone says, I have no successors, then there's no successor. Right. I mean, you know, I can pull names out of a hat and say I'm this successor, I'm that successor, but I've chosen to do this on my own. Look, if I don't have it, I either deliver or I don't. I either am it or I'm not. There's no room for discussion. There's no room for me convincing you that I have this trustworthy package that precedes me and I have leaped out of that package, that pre-packaged delivery. Right. So, you know, this is the day of FedEx spirituality and everybody gets enlightened instantly. You can certainly get a glimpse instantly. But to actually live through the process of awakening can take many years and it can be excruciating. Yeah. And as people become jaded along the process, they become angry and resentful they go on hating their former gurus because instead of parting with their false expectations, they parted with the teacher long before they, long before they should have. Because mm. it was a statement about the seriousness of their aspiration, not about the authenticity of the guru. And you can't look to the guru's behavior or how they speak for validation of their state of consciousness. There's no connection between how a guru or master behaves. They can behave like a total nutcase and still be totally realized. Huh. So, you know, people bring up this idea of integration and you have to be integrated. Well, that's a, you know, that's a psychological notion that was invented in the last, what, 60 or 70 years in the West. I'm not saying integration is not a good thing. It's always preferable. It's always preferable that someone is in control of themselves and deals with the public in an honest and upright and conscientious and loving way. But I can assure you that there are teachers who have not done this and not to uh, exonerate them for anything they may have done to hurt others, their realization may not have come to bear either way on what they've done. There's a lot of guru hatred going on for the way in which actually gurus have lied to people saying they're celibate and then you find out they're anything but uh, they're into money deeply and yet they come across as being free from materiality, material possessions, etc. So it's a huge topic, Rick. Um, we it could is, talk about, um, it is. It's one that I kind of 
obsess about myself, and you and I could probably go off on a rant for about an hour batting this one back and forth. Let's, let's shelve it for the moment. Maybe we'll come back to it a little later in the interview, or maybe we'll do another interview later on and, and, and go more deeply into that. But I want to get back to your story. Let's pick up where we left off, which was you were saying three, four years of, of you know, meditation and spiritual practice. You were cooking pretty, you know, pretty intensely during that period and you know, having successive breakthroughs through various sheaths of ignorance or, or opening up new levels of clarity. And uh, we started, I guess, touching upon the idea that, well, we were, we were talking about having it come and go, come and go, and then you began to arrive at something which didn't seem to come and go, which was something began to dawn which was uh, perpetual. Yeah, the witness consciousness had become an all-time reality through waking, dreaming, and sleep states. Mm -hmm. That went on for several years, actually. Also, with various depths and clarity. Mm -hmm. This is not a either-or, black or white issue. Witnessing can be absolutely crystal clear, or it can even be vague and tomasic. Yeah. So, this went on until I would say around the spring of 1979, when I experienced what the traditional Hindu texts called Nirvikalpa Samadhi in meditation. Mm -hmm. Meditation became fulfilled. Hmm. It became total. What does Nirvikalpa mean again? Well, Nirvikalpa Samadhi is distinguished from Savakalpa. Savakalpa is separate episodic absorptions that come and go. Uh -huh. Nirvikalpa is that one stroke that signifies the self has been realized in meditation. I think it means without break, doesn't it, Nirvikalpa? Yes. And so, but if it's realized in meditation, then okay, there's no break during meditation, but then when you stop meditating, then what? Meditation is over. You've meditated. I see. It's over. You can continue to meditate as an aesthetic or health-based routine, you know, to get rest perhaps, uh, to take a pause out of a busy day, but meditation serves no purpose beyond that point in terms of realizing who you are. It's been realized. Interesting. I'd say that the majority of people I've interviewed, or a great many of them, who have attained that self-realization actually no longer meditate anymore. And yet they seem to be evolving still like son of a guns, but uh, they don't feel the need to sort of sit in meditation because nothing happens anymore. It's the same state. Others I know who have very much attained that, that level still meditate regularly and enjoy it for probably the reasons you just said. It's good for the body. It's a nice break from the day and uh, so on. could be a deeply ingrained habit. That too. And, and a healthy one at that. And so, 79 or so, this happened in one particular meditation? There was a final breakthrough? Or was it sort of over a period of time that it sort of like shifted in? There was a time, there was a three-week period where things were getting unbearably deep, mm -hmm. profoundly deep in meditation. And also, I was going through all kinds of ecstatic experiences, immersion in consciousness, even during the waking state. Uh, there was no oh. distinction anymore, really, between the carryover, you know, between the waking and the transcendental. Uh, that carryover element was disappearing rapidly, and it just took its toll in, I think it may have been late March or April of 1979. I was at Clark University at the time, in my junior year, uh, studying philosophy and uh, literature. Was your functioning in the relative um, handicapped in any way by all this internal transformation that was going on? 
was a challenge. Yeah. It was completely impossible. But that, <laughs> was nature, that was the nature of what was to be learned at that time is that you don't function in the relative. You know, the this idea of the separate ego personality has to be penetrated. Meditation is the perfect tool to do that. And that's what I learned during that time is that if I thought about it, if I had to think about how to function, I never would have even gotten out of college. I was just on the move. There was no time to think and wonder or worry or, or be cautious in any sense. I was just throwing myself into this. I had no idea what kind of life I would be leading afterwards, if even I would be able to function. I went through many deep purifications and fears over this thought of not fitting in with the Western culture because of the very consciousness that I might be inhabiting. Yeah, I mean, and if you had read a lot of the spiritual books that you did read, then there are certainly many examples of people who didn't function very well in even in, even in Eastern society, having attained such realizations. I mean, they'd you know be sitting on dung piles, throwing rocks at people, or wandering off into the forest, or not, or needing to be fed by people, or you know, like Ananda Maima. And uh, and things like that. So I imagine you were a bit concerned that you might turn yeah. out like one of those. <laughs> yeah. I knew I was going to turn out like one of those no matter what it took. And I didn't care what the eventual repercussion was. I really was very full of fury, of unbridled fury to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't have that kind of enthusiasm, this could never have taken place. Hmm. Right. If you told me I had to walk into a room with a thousand crocodiles, but if I stepped in the right place, I'd get through. I would just go through that room. That's it. That's what I did. I walked through that room of crocodiles. Illusory but I, but I, hands and feet would disappear in the mouths of these illusory entities. Huh. In other huh. words, you do, in fact, suffer, sacrifice yourself into this totally. This is not a joyride on a ferry boat. If you actually knew what this was about, you would never go near it. If you had a clear understanding, you would never, ever approach this. Your ego personality would keep you far away from it. Your ego would, but in the bigger sense, if you had a clear understanding of what it was about, you would certainly go through it, as you did, because it's worth it, right? I mean, if you had it to do over again, you would have done it over again. You wouldn't have said, oh, that, that was too much. I, <laughs> I wasn't, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> and in fact, you probably had no choice, right? I mean, you said you had all this determination and so on, but it wasn't like you could just turn off the determination and think, oh, I'm just going to be a truck driver. You, you know, you had to forge ahead, and you really didn't have any choice in the matter. That's absolutely right. And, and this idea of choiceless, a choiceless vocation, so to speak, to do this is right on target. It's not something you would plot given the fact that you could end up mad or insane in the end, you didn't even think to yourself, well, it might be worth it. <laughs> it's just some kind of inevitability, I would say, produced by nature. Uh, it's the cravings of nature itself reflecting itself through human psychology. It's nature wanting to push your human nervous system to its ultimate eco-fulfillment. Very good. I like that. It's almost like nature said to itself, okay, boys, we've got a live one here. Let's give them some juice. Because obviously you had the potential to end up doing what you're doing. And, you know, if we speak of nature in, in a somewhat animate sense, uh, you know, there was an intelligence which realized it could express itself 
more f uh, with great fullness through this particular vehicle and so it wanted to prepare that vehicle as rapidly and thoroughly as possible in order to have it serve that function, correct? Right, so that at this point, if you ask me what this is, I'd say I'm no different than a lizard. No different than a blue jay, a rattlesnake. Right, I understand, yeah. It's just natural functioning, mm -hmm. which is really pointing the direction in our discussion towards Sahaja Samadhi. Okay. After this unity, where everything is the self occurs, and you can go no further, there's nothing else to see or know about yourself or the world as consciousness, all of that subsides into a still more qualitatively different state. Just as there is a distinction between, say, self-realization and a unified state of self-realization, where the distinction there being only myself being the absolute versus the environment as well, there's an additional push beyond that more mature consideration of world and self-unity, and that is Sahaja Samadhi. That's what I call the retirement from all realizations. Hmm. That's the human element returning unfazed, unimpressed, unreactive or non-reactive to all that it has realized. It laughs at every single realization. It's as ignorant as it is enlightened. It has no need for the terms. It's just what it is. It's a lizard. It's a crocodile. It's an eagle. Very interesting. I was listening to a recording of Adyashanti this morning, and he was saying something, I think, very similar to that. He was saying something along the lines of, you go through a phase where you're no longer a person, and then you become a person again. And I think that's the way he put it. I think what you're saying is that, uh, and please, please clarify or correct me if I'm wrong, but that you, you sort of went through a phase in which the impersonal unity of everything became sort of predominant, and then there was a further stage of development in which living life as a person kind of came into focus again on the foundation of that unified reality. Is, is that correct? Sahaja Samadhi was the devastating loss of my entire spiritual life. Huh. It was losing all the investment that I had made into being a yogi, into being a practitioner, a sadha. I acquired a kind of spiritual identity through all that. An identity which was coexistent and one with all that I had realized. But there's something that disinflates your entire journey, which makes your whole history irrelevant, which lets you see that you're not occupying any state of consciousness. And any state of consciousness, no matter how high, is produced. This Sahaja condition is unproduced. And therefore, it has transcended even this idea of elevating us ascending spiritually, like gaining more and more consciousness, evolving. I see. I think I see, I understand what you're saying. So would it be true, would it be correct to say that, um, you know, states of consciousness are more like just sort of different degrees of reflection, whereas this Sahaja state is more like, you know, the realization of that which is reflected and uh, through through various reflectors, and it in and of itself does not contain levels or states or gradations of anything. It's just it is what it is in its totality, and there can't be any degrees of it. 
let's let's bring this discussion to a, a metaphor. Okay. The image of a flower, a rose opening. Every state of consciousness that you experience through meditation or through any spiritual technique or practice produces a realization. That is like the buds coming open. And they keep opening until there's just a full opening, until that center is revealed so bees can go in and get the nectar. But the fragrance of the flower is not in the flower. And that's what I am pointing toward as a metaphor for Sahaja Samadhi. It's not in the structure of human language. It doesn't even exist as a concept within any spiritual lineage. This is the end realization, the realization that ends all realizations, that laughs at all realizations, which means you are the embodied form now of the divine in your humanness. Mm. You become a radiant, perhaps, transmitter or sharer of that perfume which is going on all the time, not radiated through intention. It's an endless wave of ecstatic perfume going on in all directions, helping all beings without motive, without knowledge. So it's for all beings. It's not for oneself. There's no me in any of this. There's no attainment. There's no attainer. Were you not a radiator prior to that realization? I mean, you could not help but have been uh, a radiator of, of a deeper reality. Uh, or is there some sort of different nature to the radiation at this Sahaja Samadhi state? Right. There's a different radiation. There's a different nature of the whole context of what is being radiated. You can teach and instruct long before Sahaja Samadhi. Many gurus are just in either self-realization state, Atma Vidya, some proceed beyond that to a more unified state, a unified state of wholeness, which is, I would call, mature self-realization, where the Atman is now the Paramatman. The Atman has gone beyond itself into its own impersonal vastness. Mm -hmm. Gurus and Satgurus teach from that level also. Then there are some divine clowns who go into Sahaja Samadhi. <laughs> this is a very humorous state, and it's... What it is, there's not much you can say about it. Beyond that is what I would just call the mother, the womb of the universe. Hmm. That in which every and any spiritual lineage connects in order to help people. Hmm. I don't know what that is. It's something we call the mother only in its reference to nature in the cosmos, the mother, the mother being the body of the whole universe of everything. Hmm. I would say that in many cases these teachers you referred to who have attained various degrees of realization often assume that they've attained some final degree of realization and you know and expound it that way whereas in fact they haven't and and this sort of creates confusion because you know people hear them talking about a certain level of experience such as this the sense of not being a person or not having any kind of personal identity and they assume that that's it, you know, and that can go on for years. <laughs> for some people, a bachelor's degree will be sufficient. That's their full education. Mm. They have filled the container of their knowledge with that amount of knowledge. Some people go on to master's degrees, PhDs, postgraduate, post-postgraduate. I mean, there's no, there's no true quantification of what makes one able to teach. And the word finalized finalizing the realization could mean many things. It's a semantic difficulty on the one hand, 
because at Sahaja Samadhi, there's something radically different that happens that is not in the ordinary structure of spiritual realization. It's not in anybody's chart. When you read spiritual critics, for example, on the internet, criticizing a teacher perhaps because of behavior issues, this is all within the field of attainment and then the reflection of that attainment in the personality or the body-mind. I'm talking about something here that's very different. Very, very different. Strikingly different. Do you feel like I'm getting it, or do you feel like I should... Uh, there's something I'm... Uh, I, I want to make sure that the full impact of what you're saying is, is expressed, but I'm not quite sure what question to ask, if any to make sure that the audience understands exactly what you're saying. Is, is there something you can say that you might help us to, you know, just get this a little bit more clear? Yeah, you won't get it. Okay, good. That, that <laughs> makes it easy. <laughs> well, you know, perhaps at, at this point, this might be an interesting or uh, relevant point at which to segue into this notion of avatar, which you mentioned in the beginning, in which if anybody looks you up on YouTube, they're going to see it at every single state, you know, on every single YouTube video. And, you know, it says David Spiro, spiritual master slash avatar. And I think mo most people wouldn't have too much problem with the spiritual master part, but the avatar part might be a bit of a stretch for many people. Uh, in what sense do you mean, do you use that word? In the sense of having produced this condition, this unproducible condition of Sahaja Samadhi, and then glimpsing the entire fabric of the universe, the entirety and also being able to recollect in one's own personal experience and trace back through all of what one has realized one's origin in the divine condition. Mm -hmm. This is um, not the perfect place, at least right now, to go into so much more that I can tell you about this. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I'm evading the question or trying to come out uh, you know, unscathed here. It's a good question you're asking. But for me, an avatar can mean several things from several perspectives. It means someone who is immersed in the uh, absolute as empty silence in high devotional states of supreme devotion and also in kundalini shakti realization all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So an avatar is really something that just radiates. It's a radiation, a radiation vehicle. Now this is not to say that someone in say unity consciousness could not radiate. They do radiate. In fact, even ignorant people radiate what they are. If a miserable person comes into the room, some other people might start to get miserable. If you are ecstatic, you may produce a wave of ecstasy. This is why we can't really talk about this in terms of strict hierarchy. People hear the word avatar and think, oh, the top of the mountain, this is the king of all kings. This is the servant of all servants. This is the most really despicable condition to be in because it implicates total responsibility for the entire human race. One feels as though one has authored everything. Hmm. This is the first time definition I'm offering you. I don't have any ideas of what any of these things mean, except insofar as I can reference them reasonably to the uh, traditions from which they come. This avatar idea is a Vedic idea. It's a Vedic invention. Right. It's a metaphor. It means descent. I mean, someone who has descended in a fully realized condition to the earth, but also with the propensity to realize and then radiate and help others, help everything. Yeah. Uh, so that, that pretty much sums up my understanding of the, uh, the term, uh, my definition of the term. 
as I've learned it, not being thoroughly familiar with all the examples of avatars throughout history, but I can think of a couple. For instance, Krishna was said to have never lost his realization from any stage in his life, and even as a little baby he was doing all this miraculous stuff, and his mother would open his mouth and see the universe in there and stuff. Um, whereas Rama actually went through a whole kind of, uh, you know, he had to go through a whole spiritual path and all kinds of despair and, and uh, catharsis and various stages before he sort of realized his divinity. And his brothers were also said to be avatars, uh, you know, perhaps not as full as he. In, in that sense of the term, I understand the, the word to mean, from my limited understanding, some descent, as you say, some incarnation of a soul or a being who was already sort of merged with or aware of their identity as God, but who chose or was assigned to, uh, you know, come to earth to serve a particular role. You know, by that definition, I suppose there could be many avatars because there are many roles to play, many jobs to do, and God can do whatever he wants. You know, he's the boss. But he, <laughs> in, also in terms of how fully he wishes, and incorrect to say he, because I'm sure it's not a male, but how fully that intelligence wishes to express itself according to the vehicle it chooses to occupy, I suppose could uh, go across quite a range of, of degrees. Uh, now, if I were writing that, I probably could have said it in a quarter as many words, but you, you get what I'm trying to say? And do you, you have a comment on that? I think you communicated one often misunderstood notion regarding an avatar, which is that they don't evolve their consciousness in the human plane. Uh -huh. They don't go through states of consciousness. That's incorrect. Okay. Avatars are born inherently one with their own self, the self of being, but they still have to mature in stages of consciousness to re-remember their inherent status as the divine. That's how they become acquainted or reacquainted with the era in which they teach. So by that definition, how would an avatar differ from anybody else? Because everyone is inherently one with the divine in their essence, and they have to go through a remembering process or a discovery process in order to, to live that. So are you saying that an avatar is different because they had already realized it, and then they just forgot it when they took birth? And, and it's sort of like when you dig up the ground and then put the dirt in again and then come back a year later. It's easier to dig that ground up than it is to dig up someplace that's never been dug before. That's right. That's a good analogy for the kind of naturalness with which an avatar evolves in the human plane. They tend to evolve very rapidly, and they're not happy with any level of realization, and what comes out is something massive in the end. In other words, an ordinary human being who attains enlightenment will have self-established, and they will live in the infinite. Just mm -hmm. as an avatar does, there's no difference in the quality of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But there's something about that avatar's nervous system that has been prepped by nature mm -hmm. to act as a radiator as well. In an ordinary human being, you may not get this radiation power, even in a self-realized one. I had a very good friend who killed himself about a month ago, and this guy was remarkable. He, he had a very profound impact on people. He had a great sense of humor, wonderful person, everyone loved him. At his memorial service, a couple of people spoke who had been having private sessions with him for about a year. They felt like their lives had been utterly transformed. And his parents had this very interesting perspective on the whole thing. There were about four or 500 people at his memorial service. And I spoke also because he and I had been meeting in a spiritual satsang for you know, several years together with others. 
But his parents said that they always felt that this kid was not of this world and that he always felt like he didn't really belong here. He was just a visitor. In fact, he would often outline options to his dad. He would say, well, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this, or I could leave the planet. And his dad would always say, "Ah, why don't you scratch that one off the list? I read something at his service that his best friend had sent me who he had confided in, in his friend several years earlier that he felt that he was an avatar, that he was not of this plane, didn't belong here ultimately, had just come for some kind of temporary mission or purpose and wasn't necessarily going to stick around a long time. And it blew everybody's minds that I read this thing out. They thought, these people are nuts. You know, his parents are buying into this. Maybe we can grant them the latitude of believing it, but you should know better. You should have more responsibility than to, you know, propagate this kind of notion. It's going to give all our kids the wrong idea, and they'll all be offing themselves as well. But um, I bring up this story because it still kind of uh, moves me a lot to think of this guy, and to and it, and I can't rule out the possibility that he was right about that. Stranger things have happened. You know, I can't write him off as just being a crazy, mixed-up young man because there there was so much substance and his impact on people was so profound. So that's rather long-winded and, and uh, I want you to do the talking, but I just want to tell you that story because you might have an insight on it that hadn't occurred to me or to some of his friends. Within this idea of avatar, as it's expressed in the Vedic tradition, there are partial manifestations and then there are full manifestations. That he committed suicide, again, belongs to the field of content. That was the drama that happened in that life. I don't know whether he was an avatar or not. I can't pretend to know that. Uh, but for the sake of discussion, there's no way you can define an avatar by their behavior, having passed through Sahaja Samadhi. That's the essential core realization that's present in an avatar, is the Sahaja state. Ramana Maharshi on another note, would talk about Sahaja Samadhi as being his own condition. Well, I don't think my friend had attained some Sahaja Samadhi. He was—he uh, felt the pain of the world, uh, or maybe he had, I don't know, but he felt like he was channeling the pain of the world through his nervous system. And even though externally he, he always seemed kind of very bright and, you know, in good humor, uh, you know, he, he would talk to him about his subjective state and and you know he he seemed to have a very high degree of realization, but he he felt things so acutely, and and perhaps there was still too much of a congealed individuality there or something that he felt he needed to to do away with, because uh, it seems to me that it, I can never say anything without you know counterbalancing it with opposite perspective in the next breath. I mean that's just the way I operate, but it seemed to me that he could have soldiered on through this thing and come out the other side and, and become a great you know, light of the world. But on the other hand, who knows? Maybe this was the role he had to play. Maybe this was the contribution he had to make. I mean, it certainly, it certainly knocked us all back on our heels and made us drop a lot of assumptions. You can't know about anybody else's life anyway. Yeah. You know about you know, what, what you're going through, who you are. You really can't. So, when was this Sahaja Samadhi realization you had? 70, uh, no, after that, 96, you said. This has never ended. This is what doesn't end, is this understanding that all realizations have perished and realization is eternal. Mm -hmm. That there's no arising and subsiding of anything in terms of awakening, in terms of 
consciousness in terms of enlightenment. Right. That whole discussion is over. Will always be over. This Hajj state dawned sometime around 1999, and that time, 1998, 99. It was something that just came in the great wave of love and devotion, and it just made itself known. Uh, it's hard to speak about this level here. I'm reluctant to even try to comment mm-hmm. on Sahaja Samadhi as though it's something that came at some point. It's like the clouds cleared and the, there was the sun shining, but the, the sun can't say, you know, I just arrived in 1998. You know, I mean, it's always been shining for for all well in terms of the metaphor for so many billion years but in terms of what you're referring forever you know it's something that is very rare actually it's quite rare hmm. if you're in this condition and you hear a teacher give a discourse you can know right away whether they've seen that uh, unless they're deliberately teaching on a lower level but that's unlikely hmm. It's it's something that's uniquely expressed in each individual. Uh, the cosmic aspect is embodied beautifully in the form. It's it's what it is. It, it's it's how it functioned. It's an endless state of absorption in the divine, without any peculiar quality to it. It has no outstanding feature or characteristic. You've had your mind blown out before with nirvana and various forms of unity and absorption in being, all of that, witnessing. So you've been really reduced after all those realizations to something unspeakable if you're lucky enough to be ushered into this condition, uh, this final non-realization. You can find, if you seek diligently, people who talk about this condition. Can you name any or would you rather not? Yeah. Yuji Krishnamurti is one person mm-hmm. that I actually knew personally, and he gave every indication that Sahaja Samadhi was his natural state. He would even use the term the natural state. He wasn't bound by any particular ethical code. He behaved as he liked, which is a good sign. There's the quality of the avatu present in the Sahaja Samadhi being, in, in other words, just something that is completely indifferent to what society thinks. Mm. Do you think someone in Sahaja Samadhi is inclined to become a bit... Do you think their outer behavior is going to shift to becoming more unconventional because of this this realization, or might they very well maintain the same style of behavior they had prior to that? Impossible to answer. Uh, could happen a, a, any old way. Excellent question, but I can't touch it. Right. But you're not suggesting that everybody who shifts into Sahaja Samadhi is, is going to become a wild man in some sense, you know, just sort of like run down the street and take his clothes off or something. Because there have been some pretty crazy wisdom teachers, as they say, who seem to not, you know, really give a hoot what anybody thinks, and they do all this weird stuff, some of which is morally reprehensible by society's standards. And uh, I usually tend to evaluate them in terms of, you know, what, what Ken Wilber talks about in terms of lines of development, where one might be very advanced along one line of development, but still have a lot of work to do along other lines. But I suppose it's equally possible that those lines of development are irrelevant and they're just sort of behaving as a, as a natural, if not, you know, albeit uh, 
bizarre expression <laughs> in some cases of uh, divine intelligence. It can also be outrageous in the sense of being so normal that there's such total humanity present at that point that the non-eccentric nature of the behavior might itself be shocking. Can you give you an example see? of that? Yeah, you know, like in Zen they say, when I eat, I eat. When I sleep, I sleep. They're just pointing toward a identification completely with human experience. Yeah, there's a sense of, of having reached the final of the final. And there's a communication about that paradox that everything has been achieved and nothing at all. Uh, this would display itself in different ways for the unique context in which you know that human being has lived. There's a story about Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He was eating with some other yogis or saints, and uh, one of them or a couple of them were saying, you know, they were commenting, "I am eating Brahman" or something like that. And Maharishi said, "I'm eating rice." <laughs> Very ordinary. Yeah. Well, uh, I could sit here for the next three hours asking you more questions. We can do this again. Yeah, it might be better to do it in installments. And, uh, you know, we can do another one in a few months or six months or something like that. Because we've been going for about an hour and a half or so, I'd say. But this is very enjoyable. And I, and I, I still, I'm, it's, it's just my nature to go on like this. And I could, I, I could think of more and more things I'd like to ask you. But I'm sort of feeling right now that this might be a good time for us to wrap it up. I think this has been a very rich and full, uh, you know, session. And uh, I think people will enjoy it a lot. Incidentally, I listened to all of your YouTube videos. You've got dozens of them. And enjoyed those very much. And I'd like to encourage any of my uh, listeners to do the same. If you just go to YouTube and search on David Spiro, S-P-E-R-O, you'll find a whole list of them. This show itself is on Buddha at the Gas Pumps blog site, which is batgap.com. In case someone has sent it to you and you don't know how to find it, uh, that's where it is. And there's about 25 other interviews there, more every week. It's also on YouTube. There's a Buddha at the Gas Pump YouTube channel. And it's also a podcast. So if you like to listen to things while you're driving to work or something, you don't have time to listen other times, you can get this on your, on your iPod and listen that way. I will uh, link to your site, David, from BatGap.com, so people can find that easily. Have you written any books or anything? I've written one book, Beyond Place of Laughter and Tears in the Land of Devotion, which can be ordered through friendsofdavidsparrow.org, friendsofdavidsparrow.org. There should be another book coming out from an Australian writer that has me featured in an interview format, similar to what we've been doing. Uh-huh. That should be out in a, I don't know, I'm hesitant to say because it's not my publication, but maybe within a month, three months, six months. And then you live in the Bay Area, San Rafael, right? And uh, you give satsangs and meetings and so on around that area? Yes. I'm not living in San Rafael, but I'm living in Marin County, not oh. far from San Rafael. Okay. I don't call them satsangs. I just call them public meetings. Okay. They are on my davidsparrow.org calendar if anyone wants to come by. They might be shocked and disappointed when they see me in person. Uh, they're getting a good look at you now. I think they'll be pleasantly surprised because I'm sure there's a very good feeling in the room when you have these uh, meetings. You also do retreats, do you? More extended things? Or is it usually just one-day events? Just one-day events, yeah. Okay. And do you ever travel to other parts of the country to give talks or anything? 
a long time ago you invited me to come out to Fairfield and I've been very tempted many times to come. Uh -huh. uh, I haven't yet gotten around to uh, fulfilling that, but hopefully at some point I can take a trip out to the Midwest and be with you perhaps. Yeah, that'd uh, be nice. In a live situation, I do thank you for your, you know, your interest. In sure. And it might be that others who are listening to this would like to invite you to come to their areas to, you know, to meet with them. If, you, if you're inclined to do that, they, they know how to get in touch with you. If they just go to your website, they can, they sure. can connect with you. I'll request. Great. All right. Well, thanks a lot, David. Uh, so we'll be in touch. We'll keep sending each other left-wing political uh, diatribes. You know, we'll, we'll have another interview like this in a, in a, some months, and uh, I'm sure nothing will have changed much for you, but hopefully my understanding will have deepened. One last thing is that for people who really would like to be with me in a live event and not come to California, we have webcasts to go around the world. And I wanted to let people know that that's available. That's right, you do. It's, it's every Wednesday night, isn't it? Yes, it's every Wednesday night and Saturday mornings. Okay. Not every Saturday morning. Just check friendsofdavidsparrow.org. You can sign up to get a newsletter on that website. I even recommend that site right now more than my davidsparrow.org, although they should be merging soon into one website, davidsparrow.org. But for the present moment, friendsofdavidsparrow.org contains all the information on weekly webcasts and I would like to express you know an invitation to everyone a warm welcome to partake in that good good I'm sure many people will okay well thanks it's hard to hang up but uh, let's do that and uh, we'll talk again soon namaste, namaste.